Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and World Affairs, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Medha Prasanna, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ambassador Shivshankar Menon, the author of India and Asian Geopolitics, The Past, Present, published by Brookings Institution Press. For those of you living under a rock, Ambassador Menon served as the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister of India from 2010 to 2014. He is a career diplomat and unquestionably the foremost thinker of Indian foreign policy today. In my view, Ambassador Menon is a treasure to us, especially in the era of rising powers, because he has been an avid China watcher for many decades now. He is able to demystify and simplify the mystery that is China yesterday, today and tomorrow to the rest of us. Currently, he is also a visiting professor of international relations at Ashoka University. Ambassador, welcome to the show. We're very lucky to have you. Thank you for having me and thank you for asking me. It's a real pleasure. I think you have a fascinating past and legacy. Like many great thinkers, I think it is really the international experiences earlier in life that allow for original thought. So I think it would be really great for us if you could tell us a bit about those early influences which led you to diplomacy and Asia studies. Well, I actually stumbled into diplomacy. I I was uh, interested in India and China and ancient India and ancient China. In fact, I wanted to do a PhD on that. But when I was studying China, learning Chinese, in the 60s, China was very much a closed society. The Cultural Revolution was going on. And uh, the easiest way to go and see China was to become an Indian diplomat. So I did the exam, became a diplomat, thought I'd go and see China because I already knew Chinese, so the ministry sent me there. But then I got hooked, and I spent the next 42 years of my life as an Indian diplomat. Uh, fortunately, the ministry sent me back to China thrice. I worked with China so I could keep my interest up. But I really enjoyed the job, actually, because it involved meeting new people, interesting people, most of the time dealing with intelligent people. And so that's really how I became a diplomat and became a practitioner. But uh, right through that period, as a practitioner, I realized that practitioners and theorists speak two different languages and very seldom communicate with each other. So when I retired, I thought maybe I should try and and uh, try teaching, try seeing whether I can't start some kind of conversation between us. And that's really what the book and my previous book, Choices, is is, an, is about. It's an attempt by a practitioner to start a conversation with those who study international relations. Because frankly, when I think of the world that I dealt with as a diplomat and then read about the same events in uh, the literature, uh, I find we're talking about two completely different things. And that's something that I think doesn't help either theory or practice. I think both practice needs more theory and vice versa. Uh, so that's really how I came to writing a book like this. The theories in your book gravitate towards Mackinder and Mahan's idea of geopolitics. And you do uh, debate whether the end of the Cold War made geopolitics irrelevant. Could you tell us why you gravitate towards geopolitics and whether it is in fact irrelevant? Well, I think geopolitics classically defined I don't think is relevant anymore. The world has changed too much and what Mackinder, what Mahan, they were all basically late 19th, early 20th century Europeans or Americans writing for themselves for a world that's gone, an imperial world, a colonial world, a world where they could actually speak of of, uh, global domination and so on. So it's not something that I think any of these, uh, you know, uh, theories can actually, I don't think we can apply them today. But what I do think is that 
some of the greatest believers in their theories are in the rising powers in Asia today. When you look at Chinese behavior, when you you look at uh, at what uh, other countries are doing today, they seem to be following what Mahan and Mackinder and others uh, prescribe. And that's why I thought it might be a useful lens. But it's a useful lens not in the classical ge- sense of geopolitics. It's a useful lens if you take the normal dictionary definition of geopolitics today, which means the long-term drivers of state decisions and policies such as geography, history, resource endowment, uh, demography, and so on. And I thought that might be a useful way of looking at India in Asia, because I think that is a story that's been neglected for some time. Uh, India is, Asia is our home for Indians, and it has determined very greatly how we interact with the rest of the world. Uh, And now that Asia has become, again, the center of gravity of the world economy and uh, the center of gravity of world politics, I think it becomes even more important to to look at it and to find ways of, of analyzing it. So in the larger sense of geopolitics, in the broad sense in which we use the word today, I think, yes, this is useful to look at the basic drivers of of state policy. But I don't think that I would uh, endorse classical geopolitics as it was defined by the founders, by by Mackinder, Mahan, by Hausman, by others. So, Professor, would you be suggesting like a modified version of geopolitics then? Uh, No, I'm not trying to produce a theory here at all. I'm just trying to understand reality and to try and explain our experience uh, and to find ways in which to describe it. Uh, But I don't think that even with this broad definition of geopolitics, that it has much, it has some descriptive value, but I don't think it has any prescriptive value. It doesn't enable you to predict the future or to even, uh, and it's, it, it's a useful tool to look at what has happened and to look at reality around us. First half of the book looks at what's happened since India became independent in 1947 and ran, began running independent policies of her own. And the second part of the book, the present, actually looks at the present situation and uh, where India might be going in her relationship with Asia. Absolutely. Um, You talk about rising powers keeping their head down and you refer to China in the 1980s and um, the US in the 1880s. And that's that kind of strategic autonomy is a policy worth following right now. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that recommendation and for how long do you predict that we follow that kind of policy? Well, it's really a matter of, yeah, it is a hard question, actually, the timing of uh, when do you move to a more assertive activist policy abroad. But most successful rising powers in history have taken their time. In fact, they spend a relatively long period being accused by everyone else of not performing their responsibilities, of not participating in the world, of not doing what they should be doing for everyone else, uh, long after they have improved their material power. Uh, this was true of the U.S. for until the end of the Second World War. This was a constant European accusation that the U.S. wasn't stepping up to the plate. Uh, it used to be said of China that she wasn't a responsible stakeholder, that she should become a responsible stakeholder, though sometimes that was tinged with other connotations as well. Uh, but rising powers have, have a few problems in common. The first problem, of course, is that they might be rising, but they're at what stage is their power enough for them to sta- start running an independent policy of their own and trying to shape the international order in the way that they would like it to be? Uh, that's a judgment call. I mean, history is full of powers who made that call too early like, say, Japan in the 30s, Wilhelmine in Germany, 
uh, and who then revealed their ambition, went out and failed with disastrous consequences for themselves. There are those who, and frankly, it's very hard to tell when is the right moment, but uh, <clears throat> clearly patience is a virtue. If you look at the successful ones, ones who made that transition from being a rising power to being an established great power in the, in the world order and then to shaping the world order itself, I think that's something that I think the, the more they delay, the longer they take, the more time they spend on developing both essentials, their material power, military, economic, whatever, but also the narrative of why they need power, of why they're using power, which is very important because it's important internally. It's also important externally. Uh, if, I mean, rising powers have this problem. If they reveal their ambition too early, everybody else then reacts to that. There's almost, it's, it's almost uh, an equal and opposite reaction is almost guaranteed by those established powers and other rising powers who feel threatened by this revelation of ambition. And once revealed, ambition cannot be hidden. So other people will respond on the basis of what they hear or see from the rising power. So rising powers have their own problems, but the successful ones have followed a variation of Dung's hide and bide for relatively extended periods uh, in the, during their rise. Uh, and they've stayed clear of external entanglements, of other people's quarrels. Uh, they've, in fact, they've leveraged the international system to stay clear of, of other people's problems. Uh, so it's an interesting problem. I mean, of course, it's a judgment call. There's, there's no formula that you can apply. But uh, one has to wonder whether China has made her move too early, too late, or whether this is the right time for China to have made her move and to reveal her ambition, as she has since the 19th Party Congress in 2017, when she started speaking of taking center stage, of a Chinese model, and so on. I agree, Professor, absolutely. And... I, having had the fortune of being one of your teaching assistants, I'm acutely aware of how discerning you are with your words. And uh, in the title of your book, you have India and Asian geopolitics, the past, present. So I'd like to dial back a little bit and go to the beginning of the book where you take time to outline how India's freedom movement was instrumental in shaping strategic culture in the years to come and how the foundation of modern India which was led by internationalists like Nehru and Gandhi, had different views that affected Indian foreign policy very differently. So could you tell us more about that? Well, I think for there were several different opinions about how India should approach the world, how an independent India should cope with the world. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the one that prevailed was, of course, the more internationalist view that Nehru represented. But his was not the only view. There was one view represented by people like Panikkar, by C. Rajagopalachari, who was the first governor general, uh, by other stalwarts who thought that India should continue to play the kind of role in Asia that it had played under the Raj and that they should actually work on larger security structures stretching from Suez to Australia, uh, create a community of defense, for instance, a defense community, uh, and a whole series of proposals like that. But I think for Nehru, for Gandhi, they proceeded from the reality of a country which after 200 years of colonialism was in abject condition. It couldn't feed itself. Hunger, poverty, illiteracy, rampant disease. Uh, the average life expectancy of an Indian was only 26 years. Uh, literacy was around 14%, only 8% for women. Uh, the economy had not grown, had grown at 0.005% in the first 47 years of the century, of the last century. So from 1900 onwards, it just hadn't grown. Population had grown, but not the economy. 
So it was an abject condition, and they realized that the main task of all policy, foreign policy, security policy, domestic economic policy, etc., was to transform India into a modern, secure, prosperous state where every Indian had the opportunity to achieve his or her full potential. Now, in order to do that, they didn't see the point in trying a grand external role or in seeking glory or status. What they wanted was a peaceful environment in which to transform India and to create an enabling environment which would help us to transform India. Because it wasn't as though India was rich enough or powerful enough or capable enough even at that stage to transform herself on her own. She needed international support. She needed an international environment which worked for her, whether in terms of technology, whether in terms of energy, which we imported. At that stage, we even imported food. It's only after the late 60s that we've been able to feed ourselves entirely and have become self-sufficient and an exporter of food. So, frankly, they proceeded from India's own need for the world and they saw... They were also ideologically committed to universal human values. We were very active in the first few years in the drafting of the, U- of the UN Human Rights Conventions and, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for instance. Uh, one of the, we were one of the drafters and one of the first to sign all these conventions. And we actually sought a world which reflected our own internal values of democratic, secular, open, plural uh, society that we were trying to build at home. And we hoped that the international community and international society would also reflect those values. And we worked with those who seemed to share those values or who want wherever we could. Uh, And so when... When Nehru and the others chose multilateralism or much more active international uh, engagement, they chose it on the basis of India's interests. And I mention this in some detail because one of the main ideas in the book is that India has done best when she is most connected to the world, when she's most engaged with the world. Uh, And frankly, that's a lesson of our history. It's a lesson of the Republic of India since independence in '47, And it seems to me that there is some danger that given the much harder situation we face today, whether it's the global economy, whether it's the nature of the relationship with a rising China, with other powers, whether it's the fact that the world order itself is, is not stable, is between orders, as it were, uh, given all these that there is a tendency to draw inwards, to go back to autarky, I mean, in the name of self-reliance, but to try and shut off the world. And I think that's a mistake, frankly. Uh, I don't think that's the, the way forward if we do want to transform India. And so the book actually is an argument, and this is why I say the past is still present, because I think that's the real lesson that I would like people to take from the book. That India needs to be out there engaged with the world in her own self-interest and that that would be the best way forward. In the book, um, especially the chapter in the 70s, which I, I feel like I've always gravitated towards, uh, even in your classes, because it does kind of represent a break in India's growing importance to the U.S. as a power in Asia. And um, it it has very much to do with the Bangladesh war, but also personalities like Indira Gandhi and Nixon. So how could India have reacted differently to the U.S.-China axis in the 70s? And did we have any other options during the Bangladesh crisis and war? What lessons can we learn today from that, given the growing... uh, antagonism between the U.S. and China today? Uh, I'm not sure that India had very many other options in 1971 during the Bangladesh war itself, because for both Nixon and Kissinger, uh, Bangladesh and support for Pakistan or the tilt to Pakistan became a sort of test of their credibility 
uh, almost to test of their manhood. And they felt that they couldn't be seen letting down Pakistan in Chinese eyes because then the Chinese would not take them seriously. They had convinced themselves for some reason, which is uh, maybe they found it useful domestically, that the U.S. relative preponderance was in decline vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and therefore that they needed China to balance the Soviet Union. Uh, I, you know, and they, so I'm not sure that they were willing to cut uh, India any slack in when the East Pakistan crisis began. I also think actually that by their rigidity, they probably made Bangladesh's independence inevitable. Rather than advising Yahya Khan and the Pakistanis, as Cho Inlai did, saying negotiate with your own people, find a political settlement internally, which would have meant giving some measure of autonomy to East Bengal. Uh, They kept saying, we'll support you, we're on your side. And I think that only made the West Pakistan leadership and the Pakistan army much more adamant and much more confident. And I think it led them to disaster from the Pakistani point of view. Uh, So I'm not sure that India had very many choices in 71. But through the rest of that period, uh, if you look at the consequences of the U.S. opening to China and the effect that had not just on India, but on Japan, on ASEAN, on Southeast Asia, on Vietnam, on what happened in Indochina, Many of of the subsequent developments, whether it was Cambodia, uh, you know, the for a murderous regime like Pol Pot's to be supported for years by external forces, uh, those kinds of things I think were avoidable. But primary agency there has to be with the more powerful powers, and the more powerful the power, the more responsible it is for what happened. But anyway, there's no point of crying over spilt milk. It's over. But I, I'm not sure that at that particular stage in 71, 72, India had too many other choices. And India did what it had to. It got closer to the Soviet Union, signed a treaty in 71, and then also carried out a nuclear test in 1974, a peaceful nu- nuclear explosion, as they called it. Uh, and took other steps to consolidate the subcontinent, to work with others. Uh, And also, once Nixon and Kissinger were gone, started reaching out to the U.S. and had some success when Mrs. Gandhi came back to power in the early, in 1980, uh, with President Reagan uh, in starting up a proper conversation first and then actual cooperation uh, and even a discussion of defense cooperation uh, in the early 80s. You refer to the nature of disputes with China and Pakistan as chronic and I think that's very interesting because it you, you, you describe a situation where Indian foreign policymakers are boxing themselves into a particular way of thinking of things. Uh, with China and Pakistan. When do you think this began and how do Indian foreign policymakers step out of this chronic nature of the dispute? You know, with Pakistan, I think some of it is still, still has to work itself out. In historical terms, 70 years is not very much. Pakistan's a new state. It's even a new nation. It's been created only in the last century. And its nationhood depends on uh, being not India. I mean, there's there's a story, maybe apocryphal, that uh, Ziaul Haq was asked, the president of Pakistan was asked, why are you doing Islamization, Islam Mustafa in, in Pakistan? And he said, look, if an Egyptian stops being a Muslim, he's still an Egyptian. A Turk stops being a Muslim, he's still a Turk. And the, a Pakistani stops being a Muslim, he's an Indian. So there is an identity problem there, which... Uh, and there's some element of hostility, I think, is built into the situation. We got our independence from the British. Pakistanis got their independence from India. So some of that is, and I think it just needs to be managed 
until history smooths, smoothens out the various jagged edges that were left by partition and the creation of Pakistan. Uh, with China, it's an interesting problem because both China and India have grown very rapidly, have accumulated material power, China even faster than India in the last 30 years, and we share a periphery. We have no historical experience of dealing with each other because, frankly, we were never in physical contact in terms of a common boundary until China took Tibet in 1950, when for the first time we had Chinese soldiers on our borders. Before that, we might have exchanged ideas, people, pilgrims, religion, you know, science, technology, traded, uh, but through intermediaries, through Central Asia, through Southeast Asia, and very little direct contact, and we certainly never entered into each other's political and security calculus in history. Uh, we had different colonial experiences. So the two republics, I mean, the Indian Republic, 47, People's Republic of China, 1949, actually came with no baggage, which is an advantage, but also no experience of dealing with each other. And we both grew very rapidly, changed, transformed ourselves, uh, and we share the same periphery. So we rub up against each other. And as we grew, as our interests expanded, as our external involvement expanded, we started rubbing up against each other. And to start with, the boundary itself has been disputed by the Chinese. Uh, as long as it was Tibet, it was peaceful. There was no problem. In fact, large sections of the boundary were defined by custom, by usage, by treaty uh, between India and Tibet. But once it became China, uh, and Tibet didn't make the transition to being a modern Westphalian state as China and India did. Uh, we've had, we now have the world's largest boundary dispute, 138,000 square kilometers in dispute. Uh, so, frankly, with China, it's a different problem. It's a problem of a shifting balance of power, which has shifted rapidly and has swung in different directions. And the effective balance on the border, for instance, has at some times ensured deterrence, at other times it hasn't, as we saw last year on the border. So with China, it's a much more complicated problem. And again, I think it will take uh, a fair amount of wisdom and management on both sides. But that seems to be in short supply. When you have leaders who base their legitimacy on nationalism, it becomes much harder for them to do the give and take that that diplomacy requires, that compromise, that bargaining, that all that requires, the, the kind of accommodation of each other's interests becomes more difficult. So let's see where that goes. But uh, for the present, at least, as you said, it seems to me that these problems are chronic. You might manage them, you can solve them for a while, you can deal with them, but it will take a while first for an equilibrium or stability to, to be brought into either of these relationships. Absolutely. Speaking of last year and India's identity and Pakistan's identity, you describe India's identity as one threatened by globalization. And I know you've talked about this before, but could you briefly tell us how new bills like the CAA and RC isolate India from the rest of the world? Well, I don't think India's identity is threatened by globalization. I mean, India's identity is pretty, it's old, established, has evolved over time, but is pretty solid. I don't think that's really the problem. I think some elements of Indian society uh, felt threatened by globalization because it came at a time when India itself was going through tremendous social churn, when large numbers of people were moving out of the villages, into the cities. You've seen the phenomenon of what we call migrant labor, which it's not really migrant. It's just labor looking for jobs. Uh, and it doesn't migrate regularly. But 
in any case, it's uh, and these are people who have then been moved away from the traditional structures of their family, their village, their clan, uh, and are suddenly in a new environment, now exposed to very new ideas and things, to aspirations, thanks to the communications revolution, thanks to television, smartphones, and so on. And the result is, therefore, an unmooring of identities. And for some people, a retreat, therefore, into these new politically defined identities, uh, which offer a safe haven, which offer some certainty. Uh, it's a false certainty, but it's certainty nonetheless, and reassuring for that reason. Identities like what Hindutva offers, for instance. And this is where it then starts getting difficult, because in a plural society like India, where... Uh, if you look at it, people are multiple religions, languages, regions, castes, I mean, you name it, classes. Uh, the only way that works is through a democratic process where everybody feels he has a say in arriving at decisions and in shaping the decisions that society as a whole takes. But most of these uh, new political identities which are now offered are actually polarizing, are limiting, are smaller safe havens maybe for those who feel threatened by a globalized world, by what the world is, is now suggesting to them. And that problem, I think, is what we are in the process of trying to work through. Uh, it's hard to say where this will go. But things like the CAA, for instance, where it broke people down by religion for the first time, uh, or other acts uh, of the government, bringing religion into politics much more explicitly, and not just by the government, but by, by political parties across the board who found these useful tools to mobilize people. Uh, these kinds of issues, I think, actually threaten the social contract and therefore are issues that will have to be addressed. These are not new issues. We've been going through this since the 19th century. But I think the answers that we find today are going to be very different because we're in a very different world, in a world where technology has erased boundaries and therefore threatens local parochial identities. We're in a world where India is much more connected to the world, much more dependent on the world than ever before, and therefore cannot close itself off. It might try, but that will not be a very successful effort. And basically, I think there is no going back to some mythical golden age or to some religious identity, which then others, everybody else in India. So... For me, this is a moment of great social change and churn. It also has resulted, unfortunately, in the politics of emotion rather than the politics of reason. Uh, and you see a much more faith-based politics in operation all the time, uh, all around us. Uh, let's see. But I think, ultimately, I'm, I'm fairly confident that India will work its way through this. But this is a moment of, of instability, of, of uncertainty. So you are suggesting that we are in the midst of another transition. And I think you're very credible in saying that because you've been around international politics for a long time now. So what do you think are the main symptoms of being in transition? Well, there's three things. One is there is no established international order. If you look at the response of multilateral organizations, groupings, to the pandemic last year, frankly, it's been pathetic. Uh, it's been each country for itself. Uh, there's a lot of talk of helping each other. and uh, But most of this help is commercial. Uh, but And the multilateral institutions didn't work. Let's, let's be absolutely honest, whether it was not just the WHO, but the UN, what did the G7 do, what did the G20 do? Uh, it's not 
So for me, the mere absence of a working multilateral system or or an order like that is suggests to with the biggest commercial disputes in the world, the China US so-called trade war, I mean tariff war, uh, nobody took it to the WTO, which is after all supposed to be the place where you settle issues like that. So for me, that is the biggest sign that we are between orders, that, that the old order is not working and there isn't a new order in its place. And frankly, nobody suggested one because today the primary fork line is between China and the U.S. China is the greatest beneficiary of the existing order, of the last order of the, of the globalization decades, if you look at how she's benefited over the last 30 years. so And they don't have an alternate order to propose. This is not another Cold War, where they represent a whole different way of life, ideology, and politics. Uh, they actually are beneficiaries of the existing order, and they're quite happy with using the existing order, shaping it to their purposes. Uh, it's, the f- it's the founders of the order who have lost faith in it, more than the others, the rest, Uh, Today, it's the U.S. which has to think twice about how it deals with the WTO, whether it it provides global public goods. Uh, In fact, is now talking of coming back with partners and reworking the system. But we have to see whether there is stomach in the U.S. to rejoin CPTPP, for instance, or to what they will do on things like WTO on the international multilateral system. I'm not sure that there is political support for that that's very strong either in the US or, and to a lesser extent perhaps in, in Europe. And these are after all the founders of this, this the previous order, the one that's no longer working. Uh, for me, the fundamental reason why this has happened is because the balance of power has shifted so rapidly. And it shifted really in the last 30 years before our very eyes. And it's still shifting. And it's shifted in strange ways. If you look at it today, economic power in the world is much more evenly distributed than it ever has been since the end of the Second World War. Uh, and today, China is a global economic superpower. There's no question. Uh, and the world can be said to be multipolar economically, but politically, militarily, It's not multipolar at all. Uh, In fact, there is only one global military superpower who can actually project power around the world, and that's the U.S. today. China might be a regional military power with potential dominance in the region, but she's in a crowded neighborhood with other rising powers, uh, with other considerable military powers like Russia, like Japan, like Vietnam, like India. She's in a difficult neighborhood. Her maritime periphery is contested and certainly is is not under her control. She might have an easier way of the Belt and Road and consolidating the Eurasian landmass as she's pushing at an open door, basically. But in the maritime space, she's and she's trying to make that transition to being a maritime power for the first time in her history. So you can see signs of The flashpoints are all live, whether it's Senkaku, Diaoyu Islands in the East China Sea, Taiwan, South China Sea, the India-China, LAC, wherever you look. And these are signs of shifting balances of power and of very rapid shifts and of the perception of change. So I'm not sure that stability is around the corner or that there's an order in this yet. Which is why my own sense is, I know the conventional wisdom today is, oh, we're in a multipolar world. I don't think so. I think we're between orders. Whether we end up in a multipolar world or not is remains to be seen. Uh, I'm not sure that the greatest powers on earth actually want a multipolar order. In fact, I doubt it. But that for me is a recipe for trouble. Let's see. I hope I'm wrong. Wow, Professor, that answer gives me a lot of tangents. But I think we'll st- I'll start with uh, I I think I'll start with the topic of the South China Sea, and coming back to our own maritime boundaries. You, 
and this is something I found fascinating, and I, I think you've already talked about this, but see blindness is an interesting term. And I know you don't claim to theorize, but um, I, I think you are very unique in bringing that up. And how many policymakers do you think share this view with you in uh, Indian foreign policy? Well, I don't know how many people share the view, but my own feeling is sea blindness is not our natural condition, by the way. Um, this is a legacy of 200 years of British rule when the Royal Navy maritime security were handled out of London. They were imperial subjects. And the British government of India, the Raj itself, was concerned with the land borders which is why there was a tradition in the government of India, as we inherited it, uh, of thinking of our continental boundaries, of the land boundaries. But there was an element of sea blindness, because for 200 years, this government had never even thought of the sea. The sea was taken care of by somebody else. Uh, but it's not our, our natural condition or our tradition. Uh, if you look at throughout history, India has been connected to the rest of the world by the Indian Ocean. I mean, for from 3000 BC, before that, you can see, you know, the maritime India has been trading with uh, Sumer, with Mesopotamia. And uh, there are docks at Lothal from 3000 years ago. Uh, and the other way as well, thanks to the monsoons, we had direct sailing across the deep waters, across the oceans, long before any other part of the world did, uh, because the winds were predictable and you knew where you would end up. And we had this trading relationship both to our west, with Egypt, with Sumer, with Mesopotamia, and later with Rome, and to our east, with the Southeast Asian kingdoms and ultimately with China. Uh, so... We are not traditionally or by geography or history sea blind. If anything, our history is, and I think there I blame actually ourselves for not actually looking at our history with our own eyes. Because if you think of it, it is those parts of India which were most connected to the world, and this was all by sea, which have been the most prosperous, most advanced, and the most culturally stable core areas of uh, civilization in the Indian subcontinent, whether it is Gujarat, all the way down through the Malabar coast, to the Coromandel coast, up into Vanga, including all of Andhra, all the way up to Bengal, what's now Bangladesh. It's maritime India. I mean, the longest lasting dynasty in India was the Cholas in Tamil Nadu. They lasted 13 centuries, and they imported their emperors from Southeast Asia when the main line ran out here. They were connected to the world. And so I don't think we are naturally sea blind. I don't think we should be. But yes, at independence, that was our legacy for a while, and it took us a little while to get over it. I, I would actually thank Mrs. Indira Gandhi for having seen past that and through that. And she's the one who insisted that we go out and draw our maritime boundaries with our neighbors and that we actually, she started the process of emphasizing our maritime development and the, the sea, the Navy, etc. Speaking of this kind of strategic confusion, through your book, and Professor, correct me if I'm wrong, I did not get the feeling that you share the same concerns about China as many other diplomats do do today, uh, that concern being a China-centric world and a, a kind of obsession with China similar to that of the obsession with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Could you I expand on why your concerns are different and what sets them apart from how the world thinks about them today? <laughs> you know, I, for me, what I find fascinating is China's internal trajectory. And what China has done with the world has always been determined primarily by what happens within China. I mean, that's been the pattern for most of the time. This doesn't mean that they're not tactically very astute or that they don't have, you know, that they don't work the international system well. No, not at all. 
But the primary determinant of how China deals with the rest of the world is at home, is in Chinese domestic politics. China has politics of her own. Uh, and China has a relatively insular tradition of politics, which has been accentuated by the fact that she is the only large country run by a communist party today, which is very aware of its unique status and is running a society and economy which has got more and more complex over the last 40 years due to their own success in reform and open door. And uh, therefore, they have to find new ways of dealing with it, uh, which can explain some of the things that the world finds hard to explain about Chinese behavior. Why is China so assertive abroad? Why is China today practicing a form of wolf warrior diplomacy, which actually only makes enemies rather than friends or making their life easier abroad? Most of that, I think, is for domestic political reasons, uh, because it's driven by the politics at home. So given that, uh, for me, I am not a determinist here. I, I don't know which way this is going to evolve. But it could evolve in many ways. And I'm not sure that a China-centered Asia or a China-dominated world, you know, I mean, Martin Jacks wrote a book, When China Rules the World. I'm not sure that that is where China is going. I'm not sure that's where China wants to go even. Uh, there are many voices in China today with different views on what China should be doing abroad. And I don't think we should at any stage believe that today's Chinese propaganda represents what China actually thinks or what she is likely to do. Uh, I think that gap has actually grown over time. So my own sense, therefore, is that there are many more possibilities than those who are either so frightened of Chinese domination and so on, or those who predict the coming collapse of China tomorrow. Uh, who also exist, uh, I think actually there are many, many more options. The other problem, of course, is that in Asia, if you look at it, change has been discontinuous. Uh, this has been actually a steady period of rapid change in one direction for the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, this is unusual. We haven't known this for very four centuries in the past, actually. So... I, I'm a little more open-minded than maybe my colleagues who are, who are so obsessed with China or who are convinced that conflict is coming, that, that the sky is about to fall. Absolutely. And um, circling back to international organizations, because as interesting as I think China is, I think we have so many existential threats to the world as a whole, like climate change maritime security, terrorism, cybersecurity, pandem future pandemics. Um, and you've, you've written for um, Foreign Policy magazine uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, that the pandemic can serve as a useful purpose. It's ex an extremely optimistic piece. And uh, you hope that the pandemic would shock us into recognizing our real interest and cooperate multilaterally. And uh, then six... Uh, uh, to 10 months later, uh, you write that the world is dividing into bubbles and um, it's uh, a piece that is extremely disappointed in international organizations and multilateralism. So um, I guess my question is uh, maybe a naive one, but how do we get back on track? Because uh, the way I see it, we don't really have an option uh, but to cooperate on all the issues that threaten us existentially as a whole, as a globe? Well, I think we blew our chance, actually. You know, any great shock like the pandemic, for instance, any crisis like that, is a chance to move forward, to redo things, to change the way you approach issues. Uh, but we didn't take it. Uh, as I said, our response, especially the world's global response, was, was really quite bad. And the cause of it, I think, is, and I say this in the book, is that because we have new authoritarians in power today in most of the great powers, 
uh, and we did until recently in the US, for instance. Uh, and they, frankly, are not able because they base themselves on this expanded idea of hypernationalism uh, to actually negotiate or to manage uh, transnational issues. And this is a tragedy because it's happened at a time when all the major issues that face us are transnational issues, whether it's uh, climate change, whether it's security issues like maritime security, cyber security in these new domains, uh, even space security, whether it's uh, international terrorism. All these are transnational issues which no one or small group of countries can settle. And they need cooperative international solutions, but they're not forthcoming because of the nature of our internal politics in all the major countries today. And that, for me, is our tragedy today. I had hoped that a shock as bad as the pandemic, which frankly diminished everybody, all countries were diminished by that pandemic, I thought that might at least shock them into doing something together. The global financial crisis, for instance, brought the G20 together into an effective alliance in April 2009. For, they actually did take effective actions to get the world economy back on its feet and to prevent the sort of slide that happened after the, the crash of 29 and, and led to the Great Depression. Uh, that was a successful example. It didn't last too long, but at least it worked. So I thought, here's an even bigger shock, because it's a shock both to the economies, to the societies, and to the polities. Maybe this will do something. But I was disappointed. I was wrong. Uh, which suggests to me the how little we should expect from these new authoritarian leaders. Uh, so if change is going to come, then it's going to be a much more difficult and radical process than uh, top-down or, uh, or the kind of change that we would have hoped would have come. It's less likely to be reform uh, and more likely to be revolution, maybe. And that's why I think uncertainty is so high in the international system today. Do you think that perhaps um, because multilateralism, as you have said, has failed so spectacularly, we should maybe start depending on smaller but more effective, powerful coalitions like, say, the Quad um, with uh, Australia, US, Japan and India? Do you think that they have a more constructive solution um, more effective solutions and uh, with faster timelines to offer just because there are fewer countries but with more aligned interests? My mantra for the last few years has been uh, issue-based coalitions of the willing and able. Uh, in other words, for different issues, different countries are more interested or more capable and can work together to try and solve it. Whether it's, if it's maritime security, it'll be one group of countries. If it's cyber security, it'll be another group of countries. If it's climate change, it'll be another group of countries. And I think if you start, if you look for one single architecture, which is going to deal with all this, the international system, the international multilateral system, the UN and so on, I think you will be disappointed. But if you put together groupings of countries who want to work together, who are looking for other partners, who share a fair degree of common interests, who have some congruence on individual issues, I think that's a way forward. The Quad, for instance, started as a security dialogue, has now broadened into a provider of some global public goods, but it'll work not if just the Quad work together, it'll work if they work with other partners in ASEAN, Indonesia, Vietnam, other countries, Korea, uh, and if it brings them in and concentrates on two or three core things, maritime security, for instance, it's talking about resilient supply chains, it's talking about vaccines, those are things which, if it concentrates on those and builds different coalitions and works with them, yes, the port could serve a very useful purpose as a sort of catalyst 
of international action. Uh, it'll be hard work. It'll be, mean a lot of diplomacy, a lot of talking and a lot of legwork, but uh, because it's not a simple architecture to run uh, and it's not some established hierarchy, but it actually reflects the confused nature of power and the balance of power in the world today and has a better chance of working if we tried these, what I call, issue-based coalitions of the willing and able. So, Professor, if we had to sum up um, on how policymakers need to rebuild Indian strategic culture, um, what are the three main challenges that they need to internalize in any attempt to do so? Well, first, I think we have to be very clear about the purposes of power. What are we about? What is Indian policy about? And I think we have to rededicate ourselves to the original task of transforming India into a modern, prosperous, secure country where all Indians can achieve their full potential. I think that has to be the purpose of policy, not glory, not status, not revenge, not none of these things. Uh, so I think that's very important. So. So we need a conception of ourselves in the world, our role in the world, and an understanding of, of what kind of world order we would like, whether it should reflect our own values, to what extent can we work with others, how will that work. That's, I think, one is just to conceive of our own role in the world and to be much more activist, I think, externally, much more engaged than we have been in the recent past. The other is to work out a set of practical policies for some of the chronic issues that you mentioned, but also to, to make sure that India becomes a net provider of prosperity and security in our home, which is the subcontinent, the Indian Ocean region, that we do much more to make sure that we have, therefore, a peaceful periphery within which we can transform India. And that requires a whole set of policies and, and a very open attitude towards our neighbors. Uh, and by neighbors, I mean the extended neighborhood. The last thing is, I, and I, this I'm, I don't think we should at this time try and build a world order or, as I said before, I, I do think there are practical things that can be done today, even on the big transnational issues, which the world seems so incapable of solving, whether it's climate change and so on. And I think some of those things we're doing already, whether it's a solar alliance, some of these, we are doing individual things. We are doing a lot on maritime security in the Indian Ocean region with our friends. But I think we need to do much more of that. And the more we concentrate on that, rather than the grand strategy, grand strategic ordering of the world, uh, I think the better off we will be in these times of uncertainty. Professor, your book is full of practical lessons from the past and practical recommendations for the future. And I think it's going to be a Bible for anybody who wants to study Indian foreign policy or people who are already in the field right now and policymakers today. So I guess that brings me to my penultimate question, which is if you had a, some advice for those pursuing Asia studies today, what would that be? Enjoy yourself. No, I think it, it's <laughs> a great field because partly because things keep changing and change so fast. I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen Asia change radically. And I don't think the next 30 years are going to be any less uh, radical in the changes that they bring. I, I'm not going to even try and predict them. But I do think that the future is in Asia. So if you're interested in Asia studies, you've chosen the right part of the world to study, enjoy yourself. Follow your interests. And uh, at least I did. And I must say, I have no regrets at all. So please do the same, wherever they may lead you. But in Asian studies. Well, Ambassador, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'd like to ask you one last question before we let you go. If I may, what are you working on right now? <laughs> Actually, I, you know, I, I'm, we've, 
we as a family have been involved in China for, for since 1943. Uh, one or the other of us has been either in China or dealing with China. So I'm trying to put together the various China stories that we have in the family and seeing whether whether they might interest other people. Let's see. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll tell you when, when I've decided whether it's worth doing or not. That sounds like a fascinating project. I really look forward to reading it. Thank you. Madan. Um, Thank and you for all the good things you've said about the book. It's really fascinating. <laughs> I don't think anybody cares about my opinion, but I'll say what I have to I say. Do. And thank you for being on the show today, Professor. I think we all learned so much. Um, take care. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mira. Enjoyed that. <laughs>